uh, in the pulpit of such a friend and uh, such an encouragement to me. Uh, Brad is that kind of encouragement to me on a consistent basis. I've never met a happier pastor. Uh, that is absolutely true. Brad is uh, just a consistent source of joy and encouragement to me, and I'm super grateful for his ministry in my life, and I'm privileged to preach again in his pulpit, which isn't his pulpit, it's the Lord's pulpit, but you know what I mean. Glad to be uh, preaching here on the topic of the church, the pillar of truth. I'm reading from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse, uh, well, let's start real quick in verse 14. We'll read all the way down to verse 16. Paul says to his cohort Timothy, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's Word, and may He add His rich blessing to the reading and to the proclamation of the Gospel. Let's pray real quick. God, we are grateful for the opportunity to look into Your Word. Father, where else could we go? Because You have the words of life. So Father, I pray that You would bring life to us to the parts of us that still are racked by the deceitfulness of sin or the hangings on of the flesh. Father, I pray that you would speak life into the uh, dead parts of our souls, that you would continue to quicken us, sharpen us, grow us, mold us. Father, do all these things for the sake of Christ and for the good of the people around us. And we pray these things through him. Amen. I was uh, brought up into the church, into the life of the church. I've always been in church. I've been a pastor's kid for all my life. And so every time the doors were open, I was there. Even when the doors were shut, somehow I found a way in. My brother and I were uh, very mischievous. We found our way into the life of the church very often. Uh, and we were told in no uncertain terms that we needed to be there. Right, And some of you are raised very similarly, and uh, it is an encouragement, is it not, uh, to have your whole life around the life of the church. I know I am blessed for it, though I didn't see it at the time. Growing up in the church is kind of funny, because you start to learn some of the rules. You start to learn that there are uh, cans and cannots in the life of the church. You cannot, at least when I was growing up, you cannot run in the auditorium. You cannot stand on the chairs, and for some reason, you cannot find in your dad's office a pocketbook of matches and light a stick on fire outside and chase kids around with it. I didn't know that at the time, but apparently you can't do that at church. That's not appropriate. You learn things along the way. It's no wonder that my mom called us a band of animals. I'm learning now. More than ever. I probably was more like that than I thought. Growing up in a church environment like that, though, you can start to begin to think that really church all is all about 
just merely doing good things. Uh, certainly, I'm not, I'm not here to say that my parents directly taught me that, that the church is all about morality, or the church is only about being a good person, or that the only way you can get into church are uh, the good people and the bad people need to stay out. That was never directly communicated to me. But you grow up around the life of the church and somehow instilled in you as a person is maybe the inflection that, at least that you catch, maybe not so much taught, but caught, is the reality that the church is all about morality and goodness and a certain kind of living quality uh, where good people are in and bad people are out. And of course, as a natural-born legalist, I didn't have any problems with the rules of the church. I had to figure them out, but I soon quickly learned. I adjusted my lifestyle, and like I said, I've always grown up in the life of the church, never in fear of getting kicked out. I was always penitent enough whenever I chased kids with fire. It was no big deal. Other kids, maybe not so much. I understand now some of my friends who have run away from the Lord growing up in the same environment where they were at least, again, implicitly taught that church is all about morality. They ran away because they figured, well, I'm just not getting any better. Along the way, you start to think that the church is all about your behavior, modifying what you do. And if you believe that long enough, you start to think that the church's biggest problems are the people outside of the church, and then the church's biggest solutions are inside the church, the good people stuck there. If you can just keep the bad people out, you're going to be having a healthy church, and if you can just keep the good people in, you're probably doing the right thing. The church is often expressed, even in Christian circles, as the last line of defense against moral decay. And often we're so quick to beat our chest and to thank God we are not like so many tax collectors and sinners out there. Scripture is pretty odd. If you look at the diet of Scripture, you'll start to see that Scripture seems to say that the biggest threat to the church is not the immoral erosion out there, doesn't really talk as much about all of these deep problems outside of the church. Scripture, especially the New Testament, seems to take a lot of time to comb through the hidden secrets and the hidden darkness and the hidden insidiousness of the hearts of those living inside the church. It's almost as if Scripture and the New Testament authors, specifically Paul, seem to think that the biggest threat to the Christian church or the kingdom movement is not outside the church, but rather inside the church. I could make a biblical or at least a New Testament argument that the biggest threat to the church is not the immoral erosion out there, but gospel confusion in here. And I'm speaking to me directly in the pulpit as one who consistently, as I've admitted earlier, as a a, a natural-born legalist, constantly confuses the gospel message. The biggest problem is inside the church, not outside of it. I wonder what Providence Church or Good Shepherd Bible Church or the collective evangelical church here in Ohio and abroad and in our world, what kind of change or transformation could be wrought in our churches if we simply believe that reality. I listen to a lot of preaching, it's part of my profession, and I'm constantly hearing 
in the messages that a lot of pastors proclaim is that the biggest threat it seems, again, no one's implicitly teaching this, it almost feels like just trying to pick up where's the biggest threat. A lot of people seem to think that it's all out there. And we pat ourselves on the back quite often saying, but aren't we the ones who have it right? My friends, we stand in a dangerous place. Yet, yet, Paul does not shy back from hinting at this reality, not even hinting, but being very clear about the realities of how God has decided to transmit the truth that he has into this world. And he has hidden it into the life of the church. He makes no bones about it. Yes, the biggest threat to the church is inside the truth, inside the, the church, but also inside the church houses the truth that unlocks the rest of the world. That unlocks the marvel and the mystery of God Himself in the church itself. It's this confounded mystery that there is a great threat inside the church, but also the greatest sense of security inside the church. And this is where Paul begins to speak to Timothy, and he says in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm probably going to be delayed, and so if I don't get there, I want to tell you right now how you need to behave. I can almost hear my mom trying to wish the fire stick out of my hands at that moment. How you ought to behave in the life of the church. There is a way you need to behave. So pay attention. Certainly Paul is not shy about talking about behavior. There is a kind of behavior in the life of the church. But Paul wants to make it very clear that ultimately speaking, we are not talking about mere morality. There is a great opportunity for you to take that instruction, right? You ought to behave a certain way. There's a great chance for you in your heart, in the deceitfulness of your heart, to take that instruction. You ought to behave in this way and to hijack it with your legalistic tendencies in a way that is now going to confuse the gospel and turn something that's meant for good into an insidious act of deception. And so he makes it very, very clear. There's a way you ought to behave, but listen to the realities that you've been given because of Christ. Listen to what he says. You ought to behave in the household of God in a certain way. In the household of God. In other words, as a child of God who lives under this house, who lives under this roof, adopted as you are, accepted as you are, brought into the very household of God where God now calls you Father. You are no longer merely an enemy of God. You are not just a friend of God. You are in the household of God where He is your Father. There's a way you ought to behave in the Father's house. And this isn't just any Father. This is the Father who is our living God. This is not a dead God. This is not a beaten down God. This is not merely just a suffering God. This is also a triumphant God who has triumphed over all of your enemies, all the things that would defeat you. Jesus has already risen over those things, triumphed over them, and is now presently living, working for you. And also, it's His truth. The church is merely the pillar or the buttress or the support of of His truth. 
This is what we begin to see, and I want to take time to unpack here for us today. Again, there is a behavior that needs to be lived out in the life of the church. But again, this is going to be an opportunity, if you're not careful, for your legalistic tendencies to hijack this instruction for your own purposes instead of looking at the beauty of the realities of Jesus in the Gospel. So I want to just kind of pick out two things here today and help us to see uh, how we ought to behave as the pillar and buttress of the truth. By the way, in reading that, that sounds kind of pretentious, doesn't it? That we would be able to claim as Providence Church, you can pump your chest a little bit and say, we are the pillar and buttress of all truth. That seems a bit pretentious. Maybe actually we would see the work of God and maybe it would allow it to humble us. Right? I hope that's true. I hope, I hope we, can, we can do that today. It would be so easy for us to say, we are the pillar and the buttress of truth. Have a bunch of rah-rah. Have a little, uh, pep, uh, little pep rally here and say, go church, go church, rah-rah-rah. But maybe it might just humble us and maybe we uh, allow us to see the gospel in a clear way. I want us to see, number one, that the church's truth flows from gospel doctrine. And that might sound like the most obvious statement, but we're going we're gonna to go through that. The church's truth flows from gospel doctrine. Gospel doctrine. In other words, when we start thinking about the church being the pillar and the buttress of truth, we're not merely talking about all truth, all time, in every way. Certainly we are talking about that, but that's not the tip of the spear. That's not the sharpest pitch to which Paul is actually going to talk about the truth. In other words, if we can say with a known philosopher that, that all truth is God's truth, then we can say that a lot of people share God's truth. We could say from Romans 1, there are actually sinners that in some way share God's truth. That they wake up, they see that God is very powerful, that He's God Himself. They know that to be truthful in and of themselves. And we can say that's God's truth. And certainly they would share that truth with us. Okay? So there's something more specific about the truth that the church owns that we need to clarify. This is what Paul is going to say. He's not just talking about truth in general. He's talking about truth specific. In other words, what he's going to say is that the church's truth in particular is a kind of gospel clarity. It's a kind of gospel clearness. In other words, it's not just true things about God. It's the truth. And we know what we're talking about here in Columbus, Ohio when we say the, or maybe I should say the, right? We're not just an Ohio State University. We're the Ohio State University. And we're not just talking about a truth. We're talking about the truth. I appreciate Nathan reading John 1. I was going to allude to it here in this part of the sermon, but it already has made its point. The law has come through Moses. There is a truth that the law clarifies, but grace and truth, not that it's a different truth flowing from the law, but it's a clearer truth that needs to be owned. It's a gospel truth. The law communicated truth, but Jesus communicated the truth to us. And so, letter A, I want to focus on the church's truth flows from the gospel, but I want to notice 
first and foremost, letter A, the specificity of the doctrine. The specificity of the doctrine. It is very specific. It's not just a truth generally. It is the truth. What is the truth? Well, you can see it very clearly in our passage. Actually, not too clearly. But you can pick up the hint of it in our passage. If you look at verse 16, he just tells us that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And then he says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. He mentions right off the cusp of this truth, the realities of the gospel. Jesus himself come to earth, dying on a cross, manifested in the flesh, seen by the the angels, vindicated by the Spirit, proclaimed among the nations, yada, yada, yada. It's this kind of truth. This is actually what I would say say is the main theme of this entire letter to 1 Timothy. And so what we're going to do is kind of go back. If the main theme is in the middle, maybe Paul sets something up to clarify what this truth is in the beginning. And sure enough, we find this in chapter 1. If you go to chapter 1, you can see this. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. You can see what this truth clearly is, and then you can begin to see the truth distorted. Paul says, I urged you, Timothy, when I was in Macedonia, remain at this church called Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, no different truth, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, Certain persons, by swerving away from these things, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about with which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers and for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And here it is. Here's the sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which which I have been entrusted. You see, he's not just talking about any kind of truth or a generic sense of truth. He's coming to a kind of clarity or a tip of the spear or the sharpest kind of pitch of the gospel. Jesus dying. Jesus raised for you. That's the truth to which our behavior is to be conformed. This is what Paul is saying. This is the truth with which the church is the pillar and the buttress of. I used to go to an old, old school school where we had this gymnasium that was erected with these flying buttresses. Anyone seen this kind of architecture where these massive flying buttresses, these big beams, kind of like cylindrical beams running through the entire gym in kind of a, like, kind of like a half-pipe fashion, right? Just kind of going through, and there's several of them, massive. 
And it kind of almost takes up way too much land space for just a little building, but it's just erect with these beams, and it's there to just construct everything and hold it all together. That's what a buttress is, called a flying buttress. It holds up the building on all sides, inside and outside. And this is what the church does with the truth of the gospel. We support it, we hold it up, we champion it. I have a pillar in the middle of my house. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, I think the guy before me had a certain kind of hankering for a particular flavor of architecture, and it's not my flavor at all. But in the middle of my living room into my dining room is this pillar. And I was like, I don't think that needs to be there. It's weird. And there's a wall right next to it. So I'm like, I don't, unless that wall is weak, I don't know. And so I, I wiggled it around, and sure enough, there's nothing running through it. I could just literally take it down, except I'll scrape my ceiling. I don't have the guts to go and, and do that yet. So it's just sitting there. But it's not supporting anything. It's just a pillar. I'm like, this is a worthless pillar. It's not supporting anything. This is what the church is. It's not a worthless pillar. It's a strong pillar that props up the realities of the gospel, that champions the realities of Christ crucified and raised for sinners like you and for me. There's a specificity to the doctrine here. Later on in 1 Timothy 6, he would say, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness have nothing to do with him. This truth, this kind of clarity is the exact words of Jesus Christ in the gospel and our life, our godliness should align with it. Crazy enough, in our passage, he says that this is godliness. Great, we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then he says godliness is he was manifested in the spirit, or manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit. He goes into to describe godliness as not merely something we do, but something Jesus has done. It's kind of hard textually to even describe to people. Again, I think so much of the time we think of the church's behavior in terms of morality what we do, good or bad, instead of a doctrine, first and foremost, to, to be believed, clarified by faith. Simple trust. And the reason I know that it's first and foremost a doctrine and not just a mere behavioral modification plan is because he also says that it's in contrast with the law. So there's a specificity of the doctrine, but also it's in contrast to the law, which is a scary kind of conversation to start having, especially when we're talking about behavior. Wouldn't you grab the law to start talking about behavior? If you want people to behave in church, don't you grab the law? Paul says, no. No. The people who are missing it are the people grabbing the law, trying to change people's behavior using the law. Look what he says in verse 5. Or excuse me, verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving away from the clarity of the gospel, have wandered away into vain discussions. They want to be teachers of the law. They want to clarify the law for people. But here's the problem. They don't understand either what they are saying or the things with which they make confident assertions. And here's what they should have known. Now, we know that the law is good if you use it lawfully. There is a way that God intended the law to be used. Uh, the Protestant reformers were famous. One of their famous 
gospel clarity things was to clarify the uses of the law. Now, I'm fine with using Paul's language here of uses, but it can get scary because the reality is we don't use the Word of God. We don't use it like a tool, right? The Word of God uses us, right? The Word of God is living and active. It does its work to us. We don't, we can't make it do what we think it can do. And if you don't believe me, try being a pastor, right? The moment you think, man, this is going to crush, this is going to slay some souls, it doesn't happen that way. The moment you think that that sermon's an utter flop and that was a total garbage waste of a week, the Spirit uses it somehow. It's pretty much flawless every time. The Word of God uses us. It's living and active. But, I think we can understand what Paul's trying to say here. The law is used to do one thing. Now, the Reformers clarify this by saying three things, but ultimately it's one. Listen to what they say. The law is first used as a curb Right? We call this the civic use of the law. Uh, this is why there are 25 mile an hour speed zone signs in residential areas. Why? Because there are morons like you who drive 40 when I've got my kids playing ball. Right? Slow down. I'll ask for a speed bump if you don't. Slow down. Obey the sign. Why? Because I don't want my kids run over. Right? This is why at 5.45 in the morning, this morning, I was screaming inside because my teenage neighbors decided to play a one-on-one game of pickup basketball. Yes, you heard it. 5.45 in the morning. I think they were waiting for an Uber. I don't know what they were doing. They were up and playing one-on-one basketball in the cul-de-sac. And I, it was, I was like, guys, this is ridiculous. There needs to be a rule, a posted sign that says... One-on-one basketball is not allowed until 10 a.m. Why? For the love of your neighbor, man. Like, just because. I don't know. It's a civic use. The law is given. Rules are given to curb back what I like to, what I like to say to my teenagers when I teach here at Northside. Uh, to curb your inner moron. Right? The law is given to curb your inner moron. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that when it works in my life. The law is also used as a mirror. The law tells us what's really there. I like to think of it, you know those those mirrors, like if you go to one of those fancy hotels and your wife's doing her makeup and all of a sudden like she pulls up this like extendo mirror and it's got like this weird little mirror on it, it's this concave kind of mirror and it looks kind of funny and blurry, like what is the point of this until you get real close to it and all of a sudden like you're right in on your nose and you're like right there. And you see everything. Nothing is missing. And then it's got that light rim around it. And it just lights up every part of your face that has a flaw. And I'm like, babe, this is not, this is not good for you. Like, this is not healthy. Because this ends up, you're buying more products for no reason. Like, no one sees what this mirror reveals. No one, no one sees that. I don't see that. But the law does this for us. It tells us things we don't even see. Or as Hebrews goes on to say, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. The law can tell you what you're thinking before you even know what you're thinking. When God says, thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself, it shows a mirror back on your heart all the ways in which you are not pulling that off. The third use of the law is the law is a guide. It tells you what God wants for your life. It tells you how God wants you to live. It tells you how life works best. It is kind of, in some ways, like a life manual that God has given to us and says, there's a lot of blessing when you live according to this reality. 
Israel faced this often. You obey my words, you'll experience blessing. You disobey my words, you'll experience curse. God didn't have to do too much legwork on that because he just let the realities of the law just take their effect. Sin and brokenness just continue to propagate when we don't live according to God's rules and standards. But in all these ways, what Paul's trying to highlight and what the Reformers ended up saying at the end of it is that no matter what happens, no matter how the law is used in your life, the law will always condemn you. The law will always condemn you. Paul pulls this out in Galatians 3 really clearly. That under the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Which means according to the law, all of us are rendered unjustified sinners. It will always condemn you 100% of the time. It will never let you act, act as if you've passed the test. It's always in to remind you of your failing grade. It is not there as a ladder by which to help you climb. It is a sledgehammer to your heart. It is there, as Paul would later go on to say, it is a ministry of death. The law ultimately fulfilled in the reality of Jesus ends at the cross. You have to understand that the first word that God wants to speak to the first Adam is always this word of death. God is out to kill you. I make no bones about it. The law is after you. The law doesn't let you wiggle free. You don't believe me? Go to the Sermon on the Mount, which is actually, I don't think, is necessarily Jesus' expose on the gospel. I actually think the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' expose on the law. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've ever looked at a woman once with lust in your heart, you are an adulterer. One time. If you've ever thought about it, one time. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, don't hate them. But I say to you, if you've ever been even angry, what we begin to see is that the law of God is totally inflexible, meant to condemn. You're not, it's not to help you get along. It's not to help you out. It's not to give you the actual power to get the work done. It can show you what love for God and love for neighbor look like, but it never gives you the power to go carry it out. It always works the opposite. This is why Paul said that the law was given in Romans 5.20, the law was actually given to increase the trespass. Not that it, the law makes you sin more, but it clarifies that you have way more sin than you think. If you go to the law and think you're getting a passing grade, you're not listening. If you go to the law of God and say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you say, check, you are doing it wrong. The law was never given for good people. Excuse me, pause. The law was not given for bad people. The law was given for good people who think they're good. The law was given for me at church who thought I was pulling it off. This is exactly what he says. Understand this, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. It's for those who are wrong and they need to be clarified on the realities of how wrong they are. It's not to help you get along in life. It's actually get you stopping dead in your tracks. And that doesn't make the law bad. And that doesn't mean we throw it away. No, my friend, we actually keep using it. We need more law, don't we? We need more of the law of God in our hearts. We need more clarity on our need. We need more clarity on God's divine standard for holiness. We need more of that, not less of it. 
We uphold it, Romans 3. The problem is not with the law itself, Romans 8, but the problem is that the law was weakened by the flesh. We couldn't do it. The problem is not the law. The law is good and we uphold it and we keep it in play. It just has a function. It's not there to maintain your righteousness or grant you righteousness. It's there to remind you that you're bankrupt. You have none. And you need to hear that often, don't I? My inner legalist needs to hear that often, don't I? Martin Luther says, The law says, do this, and is never done. The gospel says, believe in this, and it is already done. It's beautiful. John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, describes the law this way. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, but gives me wings. You start to see the difference of what Paul is trying to say. There is a way you ought to behave in the life of the church, but it has nothing to do with morality. It has nothing to do with this kind of lawfulness. It's not just merely get up and do it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Do it because I said so. Do it because it's the right thing to do. Come on, Christians, just get busy being moral. Just get better. It has nothing to do with that. The church is the pillar and buttress not of morality, but of the gospel. And that's different. The church is not the curator of good behavior, but of good news. The church does not prop up all of these things that you have to do for Jesus, but it does prop up all the things that Jesus has done for you. And that's the difference. The operation of the law is constantly telling you, do more, try harder, be better. That's not the kind of truth the church props up. The church props up the realities of the law. When you failed, and you have, and the gospel, Jesus came in and did it for you. That's the truth. That's the gospel doctrine that we're trying to clarify. The church's truth flows from gospel doctrine. And the problem is we get off the rails when we start to move away from the gospel and back to lawful realities. And Paul is picking on these people who have made a mess of the church because they got off the gospel this much. Starting requiring things for marriage. Started doing dietary restrictions for no reason. And now people are getting gospelly confused. Just told to shape up and be better. Be more moral. And he says, you're not even close to the gospel. The church's truth flows from gospel doctrine, but also, number two, gospel doctrine always leads to gospel culture. A gospel doctrine, that is the clarity of the gospel, always leads to a culture that is palpable with good news. Clarity of the doneness of Jesus leads to a culture that is not performance-based in the church. As you embrace the freedom of God given to you in the Gospel, it leads to a kind of free-moving heart in the life of the church. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how to behave. Again, as I've told you, Paul is concerned about behavior, but it's not what you think. It's not merely about shaping up, sit down, sonny, sing the songs. It's not merely morality. He is concerned with a different kind of operation at the level of the heart. 
If you go to 1 Timothy 1 again, you can see right in the middle of that beginning passage, he says his entire goal for the letter and for his little opening statement. He says this in verse 5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, if his aim or his charge is merely love, he could go to the law for that and just say, you guys need to be more loving. Please get busy. Thank you. But he doesn't do that. It's the same charge, but it's a different, get this, it's a different operation. Same goal. Different mechanism at work. He's not just telling you to shape up. Do it because I said. Let's go. It's the right thing to do. He says, do it because you've been loved. See the reality of the Gospel for you. Having believed that, my friend, the aim of what I'm trying to get across is that we all would love one another. There's a different operating system at work. It would be easy for us to take chapter 3, verse 15, and Paul's charge, I want you to know how to behave, and be like, fine, give us something to do, Paul. Stop talking about this gospel stuff. Give me something to do. I just want to behave better. And sometimes our inner legalists love that a lot. Because it's easy. It's easy just to tell me what i got to do, and then I go do it, and then my mom's happy with me for the rest of the week. It's great. She thinks I'm a good boy. That's easy. It doesn't touch resurrection at all. That doesn't give us an escape from the internal death we feel at all. There's no transformation. There's no organic growth with that. I used to joke, I, I, used to, I used to do behavioral therapy for children who had autism. And it's amazing. It's amazing what you can help kids with mental disabilities be able to get and process and learn and grow. But it's all like uh, positively reinforced, right? I mean... I don't mean to be crass, but it's kind of like what I do with my dog, right? If I give it enough treats, it can do pretty much whatever. I, mean, I can train my dog to come to church. I can train my dog to come sit in pews. It's great, but that's not what we're after. This is not merely about simple behavioral modification, as helpful as that can be at times. I'm teaching my kids behavioral modification because it helps them in church sit still, right? And it helps my, my wife and I not to worry, and it keeps people from being hit in the eye. It's helpful, but it doesn't save. It's not the end. Paul wants a love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul is not concerned with mere behavior modification, but with gospel operation at the level of the heart. Why? Because Paul knows something pastorally. Doctrine dictates operation. What you believe shapes what you do. Which is why it's so dangerous that we consistently live in legalistic tendencies because it shows at the root of our heart we're banking on our performance to save us. And though I would never articulate that and clarify that to you, that is what I'm functionally leaning in and that's going to breed death and in the end bring death. What my heart needs is the realities of the law. I'm not passing the grade. Then another word, the gospel, which tells me even when I didn't pass the grade, Jesus became sin for me and gave me his righteousness in my place. I need that. 
This is why Paul says, I encourage you to move away from anybody who's not teaching this doctrine. He's not talking about behavior anymore. He goes back to the doctrine. Look at their doctrine. Look what they're saying. Look what they're teaching. Look what they're believing. Look at the message that they're giving you. Don't de- they are devoting themselves to myths. Endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than this stewardship that God has given us by faith. Many of you have chosen to use Android operating systems on your phone. Sorry for you. For the rest of us, the good moral people, we use Apple. It's great. Our lives are easier. It's fantastic. We have less battery life, but it's okay. We're working our way through it. Um, We have different operating systems. Two different things. And boy, isn't it frustrating when you have to switch between both. You need to do that, do that for work. You have to go back and your, your lifestyle phone is like your, your Apple and then like work gives you Android and you're just like, ah. I work with a couple of people, not work, but at our church we have a couple of people who do that and it's pretty frustrating. A lot of us tend to think that life with Jesus is merely downloading Jesus onto the old operating system of our phone, right? I'm going to trust in Jesus I got my Apple phone, and now I'm going to download the app Jesus because I've got to add him to my life. And he's going to help me be more moral. He's going to help me be more efficient. He's going to help me be better and produce more. A lot of us think that that's merely how the gospel works. It's just another add-on to our old operating system. Paul's saying, I'm not, I'm not dealing with this operating system of the law. I don't care about what you have to do. It's not about that. I'm not approaching this from a moralistic standpoint of just be good and shape up. I want you to throw away this operating system and start to adjust your soul to a different operating system, not of do, but of done. How about there's no apps on the phone where Jesus is the one who has run everything for you. Everything runs through His cross and blood. Everything runs through His merit handed to you. Everything operates through His sovereignty at work in your life. His goodness in your life. His grace which triumphs over your sin. His holistic Jesusness over the holistic you-ness. What about, what about that operating system of just rest in the Gospel? I don't like that. I don't like that. I, don't know. I, don't, I can't adjust. I can't do that. That's a whole new way. That's what Paul's saying. Our charge is love, but a specific kind of love that exists on a new operating system. A new operating system that has a pure heart. How are you going to get a pure heart apart from the realities of the gospel? Unless you are baptized into the waters of Jesus, into the blood of Jesus where your heart can be cleansed, how are you going to get a pure heart? How are you going to be washed clean unless you confess your sins to Him and with a word of forgiveness He pardons you in uh, in full? How are you going to get a pure heart? Who's going to climb the holy hill of God? Psalm 24. He who has a pure heart. Got that? How are you going to get a good conscience? I could probably stop being a pastor if I could convince people that Christ gives you a clean conscience. I should say, I, should, I could probably stop counseling people, right? Probably stop counseling people if I could just convince them. That sin that you constantly live in fear of, Jesus paid for that. He's not ashamed of it like you are. That shame that you feel, that's not keeping you back from Jesus. 
you trying to pay it off, that might be keeping you from Jesus because you're not accepting him as he is. You're not accepting the free gift that he's given you. But your sin is not the problem. It's your self-righteousness that's keeping you from him. It's not your shame that's the problem. He's taken it away. You have a good conscience, a clean conscience. He sees it all. And by the way, the law informs your conscience. The law helps you do the work of confession. So you've got to listen to it. You've got to pay attention to it. You've got to, don't give yourself the benefit of the doubt. Right? Don't let your heart wiggle free. You're worse off than you think you are. You need Jesus a lot more than you think you do. But also you have him. And everything that he has given to you is everything you want. So you have a good conscience and a sincere faith. This isn't rocket science. This doesn't take a seminary degree. It's so easy my five-year-old child can do it. Just simple trust. In fact, that's the model. A sincere faith. A simple, I'm going to put everything on Jesus. I'm going to throw all my anxieties upon him. I think he cares for me. Like a child would do. That's what a child would do, right? I'm going to give you all my problems, Dad. What do you got today? There were no more strawberry Pop-Tarts left today. All right. I got this. All right. And we have big problems. I'm not trying to minimize your problems. This is what Paul is trying to say. I am concerned that you behave. But it all rests on the fact that the gospel, Jesus, given to us in the cross and in the resurrection, that kind of Jesus, that is the truth that the church upholds. That is the truth that we are to champion. We do ourselves a disservice. We do the world a disservice when we start to prop up the church as being this bastion of political rightness. Or if we start lifting up all of our morality, look look how good we are, look how bad you are. We are not holding up the truth that saves, that gives people a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We're not hitting the target of Paul's pure love here. We're holding up the realities of the law. We're holding up ourselves. We're distorting people from the gospel. Paul says you're missing it. My goal for you is love that flows from a reality of the gospel. The church is the the pillar and the buttress of the truths of Jesus. Let's lift him up. Let's lift him up. What might this look like? Paul does give a ton of instruction in 1 Timothy. A ton of instruction. And I'm not here to say that it looks like remarkably different than a good dose of morality. Okay? To be honest, I mean, there's good old qualifications for elders and deacons where it's basically like, man, these guys got to be good dudes. There's instructions for women where it's like, women, you should probably not draw so much attention to yourself. You should probably live in a way that's like humble. All right, that sounds like morality, doesn't it? It sounds, I mean, it sounds like, oh, that's not rocket science, that's pretty, that's pretty great. Like, slaves, if you're working, you should probably, like, work hard. Do it because you love these people, right? Do it because you have Christ. Or, you know, if you're young, if you're young, I want you to actually set the example for the old folks. I want, I want, don't let anyone despise you for it, but you set the pace. You set the tone. This is not rocket science, right? We're not talking about rocket science. But I do think there is something about the, the operation that Paul is super concerned with here. 
And that, that is what we're here to prop up. The realities of the gospel. So I'm not going to ask, how are you doing? Because I know, like me, you struggle. Oftentimes, I don't feel like a good dude. Oftentimes, I don't feel like as a young person, I'm setting the pace for older folks. Maybe do better sometimes than others, whatever. It's fine. I think sometimes I draw way too much attention to myself. It happens. But the reality of the gospel, I can continue to believe. So I'm going to ask you, what are you trusting in right now? What are you believing right now? How are you going to get a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith? Where, how do you get that? What's the operating system of your heart? And if, like me, you feel like, even that, I still struggle, can I just push you in full, just right off the edge and say, put it all on Jesus, man. Put it all on Jesus. Put it all on Him. All of your sin, all of your struggle, all of your fears, all of your anxiety, all of your immorality, all of it. Put it all on Him. That's the kind of truth that Paul wants us to believe and then the behavior that he wants us to uphold. The church's truth flows from gospel doctrine, but also gospel doctrine always leads to a gospel culture. And I pray that providence here would continue to exhibit the realities and the fruit of a good gospel culture because of the sound doctrine that we believe. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would continue to work in us a heart to believe the gospel, that you would move us away from uh, the operating system of the law, which merely says do. Uh, I pray that you would help us to see the finished work of Jesus and believe that it is done, and that may it free us up to love and to serve our neighbors with the kind of simplicity and sincerity that you've called us to. Thank you for Providence Church. I pray that you would continue to work in it as you have promised. pray these things through Christ. Amen.